0: We have all seen on TV the devastation caused by tsunamis. None of us would ever want to face one. But this is exactly what happened to Londoners in 1814 on the site of modern-day Tottenham Court Road. Over one million pints of beer burst their barrels, causing a wave of epic proportions to run along nearby streets. Causing devastation and drowning eight people Including members of a family Already attending a wake for another relative This is the story of the Great Beer Flood The Historical Crimes and Criminals Podcast. I'm Steve, your host. You know nothing, John Snow. Certainly didn't apply to the following famously named Victorian doctor, who saved many lives thanks to his dedication. John Snow was a doctor who used epidemiology to find the underlying cause of cholera. There had been many outbreaks resulting in deaths, particularly in 1832, when an epidemic rampaged through the dockside areas of Limehouse and Rotherhide. The general theory at the time was that cholera was airborne and caused by pollution, amongst others. What we did know was that it would kill within hours, after vomiting and the subsequent dehydration. When an outbreak occurred in 1854 in London's Soho, Snow was to use a radical technique of epidemiology to prove his case. His approach was to map all the houses of the infected and talk to the victims' families. After that, it became evident to him that the probable cause was a pump in Broad Street. This theory was enhanced when Snow heard of a case of someone who'd contracted cholera outside the area, but it was explained that she'd previously lived in the area and liked the taste of the Broad Street pump and collected bottles of water whenever passing through the area. On further investigation, it was found that everyone sick had drank from this pump. Snow wrote, I found that nearly all the deaths had taken place within a short distance of the Broad Street pump. There were only 10 deaths in houses situated nearer another street pump. His theory was further supported by the fact that the men who worked in a brewery on Broad Street had no cases of cholera as they either drank beer or water from the brewery's own well. On removal of the pump handle, the cases of cholera stopped. However, people continued to have a mistrust of water. There have been, for centuries in London, a mistrust of water, and many people preferred to drink only beer. Just as now, there was various ales and beers with different alcohol content, it was usual for men to drink whilst working. Indeed, it was common for workers such as sailors who engaged in laborious tasks to drink more than 10 pints of small beer a day. A small beer was so called as it contained a lower amount of alcohol by volume than most others, usually between 0.5% to 2.8%. It was sometimes unfiltered and porridge-like. It was a favoured drink in medieval Europe and colonial North America. Small beer was also produced in households for consumption by children and by servants. In the Dickens novel, David Copperfield, we see the ten-year-old Copperfield ordering beer with his meal. Guides were published in the 1716 edition of... The whole Art of Husbandry offers a recipe for making small beer. Small beer was also consumed for its nutritional content. In a plan for the conduct of female education in boarding schools published in 1797, writer Erasmus Darwin says, For the drink of the more robust children, water is preferable. And for the weaker ones, small beer. Educational establishments like Eton and Oxford University even ran their own breweries. And like the coffee houses, we saw the pubs becoming almost employment agencies towards a specific trade. And even today, we see a nod to this with pub names such as the Butcher's Arms, the Carpenter's Arms, and the Bricklayer's Arms, where it, if you threw a penny... It would probably land on someone of that trade. An employer or master tradesman would turn up and he could have his pick of employees. It was commonplace for bribes towards the landlord, the best way of securing the next available job. The most common name of a pub in London is the Red Lion, which became popular in 1603 when James VI of Scotland became James I after the Act of the Union. He then ordered all prominent buildings display the Red Lion of Scotland, including pubs. If ever in the Liverpool Street area of London, a visit to Dirty Dick's is recommended. I've certainly spent a few drunken evenings there and recommend the pork pies. Despite the slightly misleading name, it's a very nice old wooden pub and was owned by Nathaniel Bentley in the 1700s. He was known as Dick, but when his wife died on their wedding day, he refused to clean or wash and lived in such squalor that he became famous and a living tourist attraction. He, however, lived to be 74 and it's said that Dickens modelled the character of Miss Haversham in great expectations on him. The drunkard's cloak as a punishment was used in Newcastle in the time of Oliver Cromwell's Commonwealth. It was used by these Puritans to humiliate drunkards, and it was a brilliantly inspired visual metaphor for the clumsy, incapacitating effects of alcohol As a punishment for drink-related crimes, drunkards were hemmed into a giant wooden barrel, their arms, legs and head peeping out of the holes like a semi-hatched chicken. The offender was then made to shuffle inelegantly through their local area to the beating of drums like a contrite Humpty Dumpty, desperately trying to avoid making eye contact but knowing he would be mocked by everyone who knew him for a very long time. The Horseshoe Brewery was established in 1764 and it stood at the corner of Great Russell Street and Tottenham Court Road, the present-day site of the Dominion Theatre and next to Tottenham Court Road tube station. By 1810, the Horseshoe Brewery was producing beer on an industrial scale, with more than 100,000 barrels of the dark-coloured porter produced. The brewery had massive wooden fermentation tanks, almost four metres high, and these huge vats held the equivalent of over 3,500 barrels of the brown porter. The vats were secured with sturdy iron rings, so too, prevent the build-up of pressure due to the fermentation process. Around 4.30pm, on Monday the 17th of October, 1814, storehouse clerk, George Crick, inspected one of the three-storey tall wooden vats girdled in the heavy iron hoops which the black beer fermented. As he looked down from his perch, the clerk suddenly noticed that the 700-pound hoop had cracked and slipped off an enormous cask that stored a 10-month batch of porter. Crick, who'd been with the company for 17 years and had watched it grow to become the city's fifth-largest producer of porter, knew this happened two or three times a year and didn't think much of it. Even though porter filled all but the final four inches of the vat and the pressure from the fermentation process was building inside, Crick's boss told him that no harm whatever would ensue. Crick was ordered to write a letter to another brewery employee who would fix it at a later date. Soon after he penned the note, around 5.30pm, Crick heard a massive explosion from inside the storeroom, the compromised vat, which held the equivalent of one million pints of beer, had burst into splinters. The blast broke off the valve of an adjoining cask that also contained thousands of barrels of beer and it set off a chain reaction as the equivalent weight of 570 tons of liquid smashed other hogsheads of porter. Beer soon engulfed the area with a massive tidal wave sweeping down the narrow streets and alleyways, spreading through the narrow surrounding streets. This was exacerbated as there was no drainage systems on the street. This was St Giles' Rookery, a densely populated London slum of cheap housing and tenements inhabited by the poor, the destitute, prostitutes and criminals. One of the first casualties was a 14-year-old servant called Eleanor Cooper who was scouring pots at an outdoor water pump at Tavistock Arms Public House on nearby Great Russell Street and in the shadow of the 25-foot-high brick wall near the brewery. The wall exploded and crushed her. The worst damage occurred in New Street. The cascade swept away four-year-old Hannah and Mary Banfield in the middle of their tea and the little girl drowned in the tsunami of beer. Anne Saville was awake in a nearby cellar mourning the body of her two-year-old son John who had died the previous day. Also in the cellar was Elizabeth Smith, Catherine Butler, Mary Mulvey and her three-year-old son Thomas. The flood happened so quickly it filled the cellar and they all drowned inside. Other families had to climb upon furniture to stay above the beer levels in other basements. And another child, Sarah Bate, was afterwards found dead in another house in New Street. The next day, London's morning newspaper reported the following. The surrounding scene of desolation presents a most awful and terrific appearance, equal to that which fire or earthquake may suppose to occasion. The flood had claimed the lives of eight women and children. The coffins of the victims were laid out in a nearby yard. A stream of Londoners paid their respects and clinked pennies. In shillings onto a plate to pay for the funeral. All of the brewery workers survived, battered and bruised, most having to be dragged from the flood and the wreckage. People not involved in the carnage came from miles around, some to help, others to witness, and some with receptacles to scoop up the vast pools of beer that had settled. An inquiry was held, but the disaster was ruled to be an act of God, with no one being found responsible. The flood cost the brewery around £23,000. However, the company were able to reclaim the excise duty paid on the beer, which saved them from bankruptcy. They were also granted £7,000 as compensation for the barrels of lost beer. The wooden fermentation casks were replaced with lime concrete vats and the Horseshoe Brewery continued at the site until 1922. The smell of beer permeated the area for months afterwards, a grim reminder if anyone ever needed one. Well, that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, Please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and join me on Twitter at the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. And and until next time, bye bye.